Welcome to Greycast, exploring the world of Greyhawk one podcast at a time. This podcast is all about bringing the classic world of Greyhawk setting to life through Greyhawk creators, Greyhawk lore, Greyhawk streamers, Greyhawk stories, and of course the vibrant Greyhawk community of gamers. Thank you for tuning in and let the exploration of Dungeons & Dragons' most classic and revered setting, the world of Greyhawk, begin now. Welcome, fellow Greyhawkians. It is time for yet another adventure out our front door here on Greycast. And we're super stoked to be continuing a, a new series um, with our friend Oblivion Seeker. Les, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine, sir. Doing fine. Yeah, great, glad great. To yeah, glad to have you. Mateus, of course, is right alongside here. Hey, Mateus. Hey. Very nice. So we're calling this series Appendix N and Adjacent, and we're just kind of traipsing through all of the good richness that is Appendix N, um, and that appeared first in the original DMG. Am I, is that, do I have that right? Correct. Okay, good. I got one right. That's that's probably the only one I'm gonna get right tonight. I'm as I was, we were talking beforehand. I was telling Les I'm way out of my element with this nah. stuff, and so I'm gonna be soaking up the the goodness. And tonight we're gonna be talking about um, unknown worlds of Greyhawk. We're gonna be looking at a publication called Unknown, later changed to Unknown Worlds. Uh, when it was uh, according to Les here, it was a fantasy. I like the sibling publication to astounding science fiction. And so we're going to go into the weeds and we're going to dive deeper into the various things that inspired uh, the early creators of Greyhawk. Dare we say we are going to go into the unknown? Into the unknown. I've heard of that. That's a thing in in Greyhawk. In fact, that's a module, uh, B1. Uh, Nothing to do with this, though. (laughs) Cascaton and Rohan and Zeligar, but we're not doing that. That's probably another episode. Uh, But yeah, so less Unknown Worlds of Greyhawk is kind of what we're going to call this one. Um, Talking about Unknown Worlds, so get us going, man. Okay, before I do, I want to mention a a very special um, publication, uh, or actually a number of publications. Uh, Rob Kuntz, who, of course, was... uh, Gary Gygax's co-DM for the original campaign uh, has been publishing some material, and he did something. He, one of the one of these works, uh, which he was kind enough to provide us all with a review copy of, um, actually dovetails nicely with the kind of thing we're going to be trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is called uh, Gargax's Glorious Gugaz, and uh, among other things, it's it's a, it's a collection of magic items and wonderments. Um, kind of all inspired by certain films that were inspirations to, in turn, inspirations to uh, Gary Gygax and to Rob himself. And uh, he takes you through uh, the circus of Dr. Lau and uh, Zatz and uh, the wonderful uh, Roger Corman, uh, Edgar Allan Poe film, The Raven, and... uh, yeah, he just and of course uh, Sin, the Sinbad films, Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is a particularly great um, example where he looks at how it inspired actual elements, including uh, how the Raven helped inspire the magic system in D and D and AD and D, and how he he takes that that material that it had been an inspiration to the original game and to the original campaign and then creates new items out of it yeah that's what's neat is it's completely original old school feel because it's from that same creative process but it's all new stuff exactly it's super cool so yeah yeah um super stoked for that um just getting i had a chance to review that again thanks for arranging for us to get that um to, oh, to thank, thanks, thanks to Rob for, for offering. I, that for was sure. very generous of yeah. him. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to go ahead and plug his site, of course. it's uh, Yes, please do. 
Three Line Studios. That's T H R E E L I N E S T U D O U D I O. Excuse me. Store Three Line Studio Store. All all written as one word. Dot company. Dot site. And you go there, and you'll be able to see that and his uh, Price is Price, which is an adventure uh, paying tribute to Gygax's Love of the Raven, that film. Um, and you'll also be able to see, of course, uh, his latest release about Lord Robilar. Yes. And uh, mm. of Lord, yeah. Lord Robilar. And I... uh, there's some other great material there. Check it out, and by all means, it's it's it'll be, it'll really help your campaign. It's great stuff. I can't say enough good stuff, good, good yeah. things about it. It's like uh, I feel my youth rejuvenating itself. Um, exactly. You know, Mr. Gygax and Mr. Kuntz colored my childhood, not childhood, but teenage years. Um, man, I just, it gives me goosebumps. So, so cool. So cool. Indeed. Um, indeed. Yep. All right. So, so, unknown. Unknown. What is unknown? Unknown was a magazine. That was started in 1939. Now, a, a gentleman by the name of John Campbell, who I can talk about a little more uh, if you want, um, became editor of Astounding Science Fiction in 1937. And in many histories of science fiction, he initiated what became known as the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Hmm. Um, this was the period when science fiction started, its profile started becoming somewhat elevated, and it became more of an acceptable thing rather than just a kid's seen as a kid's uh, hobby or a kid's interest. And one of the things that uh, he noticed was that there was an absence of weird tales by then. Lovecraft had, had died. Howard had died. Clark Ashton Smith had pretty much stopped doing a lot of publishing by that point. Weird Tales was still going along, and it was still publishing some good work, but there was a gap in the fantasy field. And so he created a magazine which... Um, according to him, would get rid of the gothic trappings of, of horror and provide a more, a, a, a more nuanced and fresh take on some of the material that you find in fantasy fiction and in horror fiction. So that was his mission statement from the get-go. And uh, yeah, that was, that was Weird Tales. It lasted until 1943 when it died from the uh, World War II paper shortage. Hmm. Died Man, that's a paper shortage. Oh. That's some boy. That is wrapped in lore and interest. Just the whole, the timing of it. You know, back in the thirties, and a paper shortage due to the war. And holy absolutely, God. yeah. Man, a lot. So a follow up to that: How does the magazine Unknown relate to both um, Appendix N and Moldvay's uh, fantasy list in the back of uh, the basic expert sets? You know, that's a great question. Um, the the obvious connection is going to be who and what was published in Unknowns. Uh, from the beginning, it published um, Two Sought Adventure, the very first Fafnir and the Grey Mouser story by Fritz Lieber. Oh, very mm. cool. Um, it published the initial stories in uh, uh, El Sprague de Camp and uh, Fletcher Pratt's uh, Harold Shea. Or you know the complete or incomplete Enchanter series. Um, it serialized novels by DeCamp and Jack Williamson and uh, a number of other luminaries, and it published fantastic works, which were at the fringes, right at the edge sometimes, because of the approach to magic and the approach to world building. Right at the edge of its fantasy, but it has elements of science fiction in terms of it seems more rational than one expects fantasy to be. Um, kind of like that weird science fantasy kind of blend that you get sometimes, right? Is that yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking also of uh, the kind of uh, thing, like if you, if you want a, a great example of, of the kind of thing that you would find in there, um, there is a, a, a strain, I would argue, in, in fiction, and you find this in... D and D as, as as well with doppelgangers and mimics, where there's something called uh, in 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 our world we would think of it as a Capcom delusion, right? Capcom delusion is when someone has a misidentification syndrome where they see familiar people 
and familiar faces, but they become convinced that the familiar faces are imposters. Oh. And you'll find that that's a recurring motif in some of the stories that, that were published in, in Unknown. Um, where a character say, um, a, basically two characters are in a room. Hey, your wife's on the phone. He goes to the phone, but wait, his wife is in the room, but his friend is perceiving somebody else. And then the wife arrives with one of her friends and they see the per figure that's there as other people. It and sounds a little, going, it sounds a little twilight zoney to me. As a matter of, <laughs> and as a matter of fact, actually, um, it's funny you should mention that the twilight zone episode, uh, of late, I, of late, I think of Cliffordsville was adapted from a uh, story that originally appeared in Unknown. Okay, well then there you have it. So, okay, man, that sounds like a painful way to go through life, though. Seeing that which is familiar being keyed to specific people, and then having this strong sense that they're imposters, like walking around paranoid. Yeah, you've had oh. um, prior to that, you've had like your doppelganger stories, and you'd had. Um, you know, the stories of, say, shape-shifting spirits that would pass among humans and commit horrible acts and stuff. But what's what was unique about this is that it it transplants that into a very kind of cold and, in some ways, cold. In the execution, it's cold, not in the emotion that it's exciting or in the portrayal, but this kind of rationalistic rather than a supernatural kind of feel to it where there's a perverse logic behind it. Um, and there's a perverse logic that, that occurs to the, the, the characters uh, within the narrative. Uh, so yeah, you get that kind of thing. You also get stories of alternate realities which are projected upon... Basically, it's like there's an alternate world, say, it's um, in the, uh, the Enchanter uh, stories by DeCamp and, and uh, Pratt. You have these alternate worlds that are based on scene, basically settings and, and ideas from literature or mythology, right? Mm -hmm. But you also have um, L. Ron Hubbard was another con early contributor to, to these magazines back before he started his own religion. And he had a story published in Unknown called Slaves of Sleep, which is where a uh, jinn actually transports a contemporary man to a world of, of jinn and a freet. And the man becomes embroiled in a war between that jinn and I believe it's the jinn queen. So it's I mean, an alternate I mean, world from our 20th century. It's another world, a pocket universe, basically, mm -hmm. where um, you know the Arabian night stuff is not only true, but the jinn rule everything, and this human becomes kind of a pawn between these two parties that are vying for control. Mm. It, it it literally took me a, a few moments to hear that and not think you were talking about alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Gin. D-J-I-N-N. Gotcha. Oh, exactly. gin. gin. Yeah. Yeah. Genies. Yeah. No, I, I picked that that part up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so you had all these That's kinds of, of stories being published uh, <laughs> by, by Campbell and Campbell himself sometimes would publish under one, one of his more, more um, interested, authorially interesting pseudonyms, Don Stewart. Uh, Don Stewart had published, prior to him becoming editor, he had written quite prolifically for the science fiction pulps. Um, but some of his most highly regarded stories were written as Don Stewart. One of them that you guys know, even though you may not know you know it, is a story called Who Goes There? Which was trans, which was eventually, it was adapted in a film, little film in the 50s, but it's probably best known for John Carpenter's 1980s version of it called The Thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was originally a, uh, a, a, a John Campbell story from his, his pulp days. Really? And under, uh, yeah, published oh. under the name Don Stewart. And the Carpenter adaptation is, is pretty good, pretty, a pretty decent at cl and cl close reading of uh, the Stewart thing. And again, you notice you get that idea of something that can imitate and that sense of paranoia and isolation. Um. So yeah, that's that's definitely like I said, you get these motifs, and they come up again and again in more rationalistic terms later. Like uh, you were asking, you know, the, one of the obvious questions is going to be at some point, how do you use this stuff in D and D? Look at a story like, um, I believe the story is called. I'll, I'll check check my notes in a minute, but I believe it was called the Poly Polymorph. 
um, where but you have that this shape shifting being that that basically infiltrates a household, and then compare that to the thing, and then think about later works like Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, or uh, Jack Finney's Body Snatchers, which of course have been made into films so many times. And when you start reading these stories, you notice that there are little details that that throw characters off, right? It's like basically the main characters, the heroes, the protagonists, if you will, start noticing, wait, there's something wrong here. And then before too long, you're down the rabbit hole of who can I trust? Is right. my friend my friend? And at some, and in the more extreme cases, how can I even be sure I'm who I think I am? Hmm. Yeah, and, that, that, that motif has been used so many times. I, I can, you know, aliens coming in and replacing people with copies, and and I I can think of like a, a half a dozen TV shows off the top of my head who've used that element. Yeah, and I think that really, even though there had been examples before replacement by robots and stuff, really it's stories like the thing and some of the stuff that appeared in unknowns and also in astounding that really helped solidify some of these tropes in popular culture. Um, because again, they introduced an, an an element of of paranoia and rationalism to it um, that you didn't find in previous examples. So, Can we chase a rabbit trail for just a sec, a small one? Sure. Um, you mentioned um, that some of the authors on Unknown were two that sprung to mind because I'm reading them at the moment, uh, and that's uh, uh, DeCamp and, and Carter. Was this some of their early work? Uh, Carter actually not, not not although he was certainly familiar with unknown he wasn't published he was a bit young for that then uh, this is some of the uh, this and some of the material in astounding yeah was some of the uh, the earliest prime uh, Elspreg de camp work that's interesting and, and, and um, for those who who might not know uh, uh, it's the Elsbrug de camp uh, uh, paperback issues of, of Conan uh, with his added stories, which kind of keep Conan alive. So he got his, so you're saying he kind of, some of his early work is, is here. So mm -hmm. this is, this is part of that whole fantasy genre, which is moving towards, you know, D and D keeping the sword and sorcery genre alive at the time. Well, not and only even, that, not only that, but of course the, the, the hair, his collaborations with uh, Fletcher Pratt are on appendix N and also some of the camp's own work uh, is on append both Appendix N and the Mulvey list, like Less Darkness Fall and some of these great novels. And th these novels originally appeared in Unknown, in serialized format. That's awesome. So you mentioned the dude, John Campbell. Uh, who was that dude? Can you, can you talk about him a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. John Let's Campbell is going to be one of the most polarizing figures in 20th century science fiction and by, by extension, fantasy. Um, he started out, as I mentioned, as a, a writer in the pulps, and he was a very good writer. He would write um, these kinds of intergalactic space opera stories, but he was prolific and wrote under uh, under very various pseudonyms as well. Don Stewart is probably the pseudonym that I think his best stories were published under. Um, and he eventually managed to maneuver his way into becoming editor of Astounding Science Fiction. Now, for those unfamiliar, uh, Astounding had been around for a while. In fact, H.P. Lovecraft's uh, At the Mountains of Madness was serialized in Astounding's memory serves. Um, and curiously enough, that would tie later into something that happened with Campbell. I'll come back to that. Um, but, but Campbell wound up taking astounding and he wanted a more sophisticated i suppose you could say science fiction that he found prevalent in the pulps at the time now i'm when we get to why we why what's gone on with the magazine since then like why it's forgotten that that also kind of winds up being tying into some of the all this winds up being tying into his downfall he was a great editor. He had a eye for talent like nobody's business. Um, Anthony Boucher, who later became uh, the editor of Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine and also famous for his crime and mystery novels, um, started out as a writer who published in, un in Unknown Worlds. 
uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, Isaac Asimov, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, Elspray DeCamp, Lester Del Rey, go on and on. Basically, they were part of his original course, core stable of writers when he took over the magazine. And he would encourage them and he would challenge them. Like if he, if he thought there was a logical flaw or an error within the thinking within a story, he would let you know about it and he would expect you to respond. Now, sometimes that crossed over into bullying where he wanted you to do things his way. Um, but also it inspired and helped some of these writers refine their inclinations and their talents. So, uh, it, by the, by, by 39, um, the fantasy magazine and horror magazine market had shrunk considerably and Campbell saw the opportunity and was given the opportunity to go ahead and launch a secondary title. Now, this is not an unusual at the time, around the same time, thrilling wonder stories had a sister title, startling stories. Um, they, they would become kind of the, uh, competitors to main competitors to astounding and unknown. Um, and he, and he has this uh, idea that he's going to do a, a kind of more, again, I want to say rationalistic. Now, I don't, there, there are elements of the supernatural in these stories, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that before that, a lot of that was hand-waved. Like, uh, how does the magic in a Conan story, what's the logic behind it? Right? Uh, it's never really described or defined. Mm -hmm. Right, Whereas it just kind of happens. When you read some of the uh, some of the <clears throat> stuff in Unknown, there is a definite logic. A matter of fact, one of the uh, Elsprague de Camp novellas, I believe, is called the, Ma the the Mathematics of Magic. Hmm. And you can definitely see someone. Uh, one critic has pointed out that that's almost the the roadmap for what Unknown was doing. The idea that ma magic, in a certain level, you know, I've talked before about the idea that you have these in in fantasy fiction. A lot of times, you have these super advanced magical empires that have collapsed and left relics and it's kind of analogous to science right science fiction the idea of these vast kingdom or vast empires interstellar empires that have left traces of themselves behind now the difference I, I, here is that i'm sorry um but just to finish up the sentence the the, the difference here is that the magic itself has a underlying logic in the same way that Campbell wanted to be rigorous about science he also wanted if magic is being is a, is being used a, by an a, by analogy to science magic is going to have its logic magic is going to have its underlying rules and grammar if you will and yeah i think go ahead Matthias. sir i was just going to th th this kind of paves the way for um stuff like star wars um in in a way because yeah. the force um but i mean the the you know ahsoka just came out this week and, and what is she doing she's exploring ancient ruins of a long forgotten magical civilization see that uh, would be that would be i think more of the pre-cambellian thing like yeah. i said in the in the pre-cambellian stuff you could have vast interstellar empires and Starships could cross millions of miles, and it's just uh, millions of light years, rather, and it's just a given. Yeah. Whereas Campbell would ask, "Okay, so how does that work?" Right. And expect. Matter of fact, there is a uh, hilarious anecdote from about 1933 with Astounding, where the feds raided uh, his offices oh. because there was a story <laughs> that was coming out that described the detonation of an atomic weapon. And because some of his writers worked for the government and because, you know, the U.S. had a secret nuclear program going on at the time, the FBI was concerned that either somebody was leaking the information or that the story itself would wind up letting everyone know that the Americans were developing a nuke. Right. Um, some of the people who, he, who worked for, who were writers that he purchased work from they they kind of vouch for him you know no no we no one here is told you know they all were like you know i swear blah blah blah, blah. you know i've never no one's told him anything and then of course campbell himself pointed out well we've already teased the atomic bomb in the previous issue when we talked about the next next issue's stories so if you put if you put the kibosh on it now 
everyone's going to know, will start wondering why, and it'll become obvious why you suppress the story. Hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so at that time, of course, we all know what was happening. As science fiction. Yeah. When it's describing the use of development and use of nuclear weapons. So hmm. we all, you know, that was all leading into Hitler's rise to power in Germany. Oh, oh this is after. This is like during the war, 1943. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. I thought you said 33. My apologies. No, no, no. 43, when he was yep. editor. Um, yep, I got you. Yeah. So you can imagine the Manhattan Project and uh, all the stuff around those kinds of that kind of research, feds were not very happy um, and were worried. They were deeply right. worried, but it turns out it was just a coincidence. The guy who wrote the story had had the idea and Campbell had said, well, how would this work? Blah, blah, blah. So he writes it. And it's a fairly, you know, for the story, it's a dated story, but it has a fairly decent depiction of how that kind of process works. So. Hmm. There, there you go with that. That's just a little aside about like how nuts and bolts Campbell could be at times. Well, I like the example you alluded to about the like how did magic work? Like Campbell was kind of the first guy to really ask that question, establish that, and, and prior to that, like the Conan example. You know, I was thinking about those movies in particular. Like, you know, you're right; they never do talk about the mechanics of magic. And to me, it was kind of came across as a low magic world. And it was more divine, like, you know, Krom and the, the serpent uh, god, Thulsa Doom, worshipped. And, you know, there was no, and the wizard who, I mean, who only, I mean, he was depicted as almost insane. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no uh, spell slots and weave and all of, you know, this and that. So, uh, yeah, that was a great example. I thought that was because I never questioned it in Conan. It just was there. You know, yeah, it's just of course that's what it does. You know, it's like two two different approaches, right? You have the one approach where it's magic, deal with it, and that has a certain value too, and a certain power. Mm -hmm. Um, or it's divine, whatever. It's it's right. from some yeah. some from some from some source or, or like or primal whatever. or elemental. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas um, with um, and that'll be the thing is even with elemental magic, even with stuff involving you know, fire spirits or air spirits, he would be the kind of person to ask, okay, so how does that work? Um, and it inspired, because like I said, those writers who worked under him, he really did challenge them. Uh, he would sometimes even throw this, throw an idea, okay, write me a story about X using X, Y, and Z. He would sometimes throw the same idea out to three different writers, knowing that they'd all come back to him with different things, mm -hmm. then tear apart their ideas and say, yeah, but how does this work? How does this work? How does this work? And by the time the writers were all done, he had three different stories to publish, which basically had the same plot, but they were care or the same plot components, but they were executed in completely different directions and following different pa different paths of logic. So, uh, yeah, really fascinating guy. Um, and ultimately, in some ways, that that obsessiveness winds up being his downfall. But. Um, at least in terms of his reputation, but like in terms of the work itself, um, you know, there's also, I would recommend, um, and I should mention this for, for people out there, the entire run of unknown and unknown worlds is available on the internet archive. Ah, uh, right. What archive web archive.org, right? Is that what uh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. The entire run is available there, um, for your perusal and enjoyment. And also, if you need an index, I would look at uh, the Internet Science Fiction Database, the ISFDB. And you can run uh, a search for unknown or unknown worlds, and it'll take you through issue to, by issue what the contents were by, by year and month. So can you give us your favorite two or three stories from this from these, from these magazines? Do there, are um, there's, are there a couple that you like in, uh, specifically? Yeah. Um, okay. The first one is going to be one where I, I will say that there is a trigger warning attached. Um, and there is a trigger warning attached because it is about a very, very evil child. Um, now, I'm sure that most that you guys know that the um, fil films and novels that inspire them, like The Bad Seed and Village of the Damned and all that good stuff, right? Um, there was a story published in Unknown back in the day called Idol of the Flies. 
And Idol of the Flies is about a, a, a young boy who's probably six or seven who is an orphan and he's being raised by, you know, his one of, by fa family. And he, there's a servant and there's a, a tutor. And the tutor is deathly afraid of flies. And the boy seems to have some sort of ability to command flies and torments her. He torments pretty much everyone around him. And you're seeing part of this, a good chunk of it through his point of view, like a third person limited point of view. And there's a, an, a little idol or icon that he has built. And you probably can guess if you're familiar um, with uh, traditions involving diabolical names, you can probably guess where this story is going. Um, except this would be the case of what happens when a kid enters into an agreement or a pact with something evil. Um, that story creeps the bejesus out of me. <laughs> um, and it's one of the, I would argue, one of the top three scary kids stories of all time. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to say this, Les. I get the impression that there isn't a lot that creeps the bejeebus out of you. So, so that's that one does. saying something for that. Yeah. That one yes. definitely does. Yeah. That um, sounds, yeah. That sounds crazy. And, you, you know, uh-huh. Another one I'd rec I I'd say is there's a novella that um was published in Unknown back in 1940 that was uh, actually recommended by Stephen King in Dance Macabre and he talks about it at a fair amount of length. And it might this might sound surprising, but again, this is a a scary, deeply scary and unsettling story. Um it's called Fear. And again, it's by L. Ron Hubbard, and it's probably the best single thing that the man ever wrote. Um, basically, someone, the premise is that there's uh, this professor who uh, publishes a, a, a piece in the local newspaper, right? Um, denouncing the idea that people are afraid of devils and demons, and by extension, that they believe in religion. Um, and he's confronted by the dean of his college for, for, for this, right? You know, he's fired from teaching because he, he he's implicitly attacking Christianity. If you're denying the existence of the devil, you, you, you know, what about God? You, you know, what you're saying, writing here is blasphemous. Well, anyway, um, it comes up when he meets one of his friends and they're having drinks. His friend, who's a fellow professor, says, you know, you might want to be careful. You might have ticked off some demons. And that's when the voices start coming to him. Oh man. Um it basically he, he loses his hat and he wakes up on the sidewalk and his hat is gone and he doesn't remember anything from the past four hours. And the voice starts telling him, if you find the hat, you'll find the four hours. If you find your four hours, you'll die. And that's the setup of the story. I don't want to ruin that's, it any yeah, further. It's stressful. It's stressful. But um it's a great setup for a story, and I agree. It's it's with King. It is, it is a, a masterpiece. Whatever one thinks of, you know, Hubbard's legacy, that story is just an amazing bit of horror. Um, and again, it's one of those stories where it had the hair standing up on my neck, and I was sure. actually... When you get to the punchline, again, this is something that Campbell loved. He loved stories that were either... that were idea-driven... And he loves stories where there's the nice little punchline at the end. Right. Um, and the punchline to this one is a doozy. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that would be my, that would be another one of my choices. Uh, might surprise some people. I'm not a big fan of a lot of Hubbard, Hubbard's pulp writing, but that yeah. story, that one alone, um, yeah, definitely joins the ranks. And... Uh, trying to think of what else because there's so much there's such riches to be had in in the in the magazine um there's a uh actually yeah that would be that'll be the other one i would say probably um there are if i had to, if i had to choose another one that's underappreciated the elder gods by john by john campbell himself under his don stewart pseudonym 
which I believe was published in uh, Unknown. Uh, the Elder Gods involve a character. There are there are two sets of gods. Um, you have the Elder Gods, who are more like the gods of mythology and everything, and you have mm -hmm. a newer set of gods who are completely rationalistic. And have offered mankind the the opportunity to completely understand things down to the point where you will be able to know the hour and date and time of your own death. Like oh, you will wow. have that kind of understanding of how the universe works. Wow. Mystery will be completely removed from the universe, but you'll have perfect knowledge. Just follow right. us. Yeah, yeah. And the elder gods decide to recruit a sailor and swashbuckler who's also a bit of a rogue. Um to try and uh, offset what the what these new gods are up to. And again, there's a kind of twist in it that anticipates some of the stuff that you'll find in, uh, in say, Jack Vance's settings or um, some other things. I, I mean, okay, I don't think it's that big a thing. It's our world except in the far future. And the the gods actually are scientists, so that would be the kind of punchline to the story. How you get there, I don't want to say because that the, the punchline there. If you if you're familiar with enough science fiction, you're probably going to guess at some point in the story that this is the far future, right? And that these are these gods are scientists. What you're, but it's how you get there and the yeah. weird kinds of moments of is this a sword and sorcery story or is this a right. science fiction story right. or and then again you have this almost kind of idea of almost well before Paul Anderson is, as well almost this idea of law versus chaos right okay a, 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 a an unpredictable universe with gods who are abstract and you have to make sacrifices and stuff versus the gods who are going to give you everything and make sure you're you know, you understand everything. No, you're pretty much equivalent, man. Um, it's like these two for opposing forces, these two opposing networks of deities, and this hero gets caught up in the middle of uh, them. And in that case, that's a recurring motif as well throughout um, Unknown, would be you have two sets of wizardly figures or godlike figures and someone who gets stuck in the middle, Right. Um, that's a, that's a, a motif that you find throughout. Um, and again, the way that the god that gods are sometimes portrayed in unknown bears far far closer resemblance to Star Trek or something than it does to say, um, oh, I don't know, um, traditional myth mythology or traditional fantasy. Uh, even something like Reign of Wizardry, which was a serialized novel by Jack Williamson, which deals with, uh, with uh, you know, Crete and uh, Theseus and stuff like that. It's such a strange take on the material. Um, now, if I had to recommend one longer work, by the way, I would say Jack Williamson's uh, Darker Than You Think, which, without going into details, if you like werewolf stories, mm. but don't like the way that they've become kind of cliché, Imagine that there's a parallel race or species and that there is all this stuff involving secret histories and, you know, um, your own nature, discovering your own nature and stuff. And imagine that as a, a novella with a healthy dose, I would argue, of, of, of eroticism thrown in as well. Hmm. Um, and it's great. It's a, and. It's one of several. Uh, Anthony Boucher did the complete werewolf, and Jane Rice, who wrote uh, *Idol of the Flies*, did a story called *The Refugee*, which is another werewolf story. I, I'm guessing Campbell must have had a thing for the werewolf metaphor. Um, apparently, yeah, apparently. But yeah, so those are some of the things that I would recommend myself. Okay. And not because I'm, I'm just mentioning those because some of those are a little harder to find these days. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I, I love Fritz Leiber. Um, I like the, I like the Harold Shea DeCamp uh, Platt sto Pratt stories a lot or Platt stories a lot a lot, but that's not. These are the stories that get neglected sometimes, mm -hmm. or are only known by hardcore genre fans, and they should be better known. They're they're really right. cool. Right. So, again, in 
light of the fact that all of this content you're sharing with us, um, these stories of these authors, all of their content is stuff that uh, early D&D writers were inspired by, namely Gygax and Kuntz. Um, so how, let's, let's tie this back to like today, right now, this minute. If I'm a DM listening to this, how could I use some of this content that we're discussing to change or improve or create a game at my table? Yeah. Um, here's the thing. It goes, it comes back to there are, there are different ways and different tonalities when you're approaching a setting or an environment or a scenario, right? Um, there's there are things that can happen that are unexplained and creepy and then there are things that you're sure the character is sure there is some no explanation or some bit of knowledge to justify what's happening but they don't have it or they don't have it yet and that kind of that that can inspire a certain type of fear if that makes sense as in what happens if i don't find out this information in time like I mentioned the doppelganger idea um, where, you know, it takes the characters a while in the story to realize that they're both looking at the same person and seeing two different figures. And when that happens, you can imagine what kind of... They're arguing at first about, you're crazy, that's not her, that's Penny. That's not Penny. Penny's... I just talked spoke to Penny on the phone. That's, you know, Jenny or whatever. Um you can see how that would wind up messing with players heads in a way that isn't just a it isn't just meant to screw with them it actually cr helps create this atmosphere of of things being off but in ways that they can maybe understand i think that's one of the great distinctions between um what you find in unknown and sometimes what you would find in weird tales Weird tales. Sometimes it was, you know, the the elder the elder gods or you know the Lovecraftian entities, because they're from another dimension. They're ultimately incomprehensible. Stuff is comprehensible in the Campbellian mode of fiction. It's just mm -hmm. that the characters might not know it or understand right. it until it's too late. Sometimes, yeah, uh, with the, with the horror and the fantasy, particularly the science fiction tends to be kind of more rah rah humanity. The, the the stuff in unknown tends to be a little bleaker at times or or more ironic mm -hmm. which um, to me is right in the the vein of the the vibe of greyhawk yeah um, absolutely bleak, um, bleakness yeah but also you have the idea that again um that magic if it is a a bit of coding for reality right i'll use that that analogy Okay. If if a magic user understands the code that underwrites reality and can rewrite it, um, if they can alter reality to fit their needs, then it follows that reality follows certain rules. Right. And what right, makes right. that scary is that they can do things that, you know, they're like um, the, the ultimate reality hacker, if you will who can get into your reality and alter it. Yeah, now we're getting like matrixy kind of, yeah, yeah. And but I'm saying when you look at high level spells in D&D, right? You're talking about some stuff that can really mess with both local and sometimes Wish. the larger reality. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um and then there are consequences to that because right. you know, every because everything follows a kind of everything's tied together. Yeah. Logic. Yeah. Um so right. that's another thing to take away from this. The other thing would be, uh, certainly in uh, some of this, there's a bit of an iron uh, at, at the best, at, the, at its best. Some of these stories uh, exhibit a sort of irony and humor. Sometimes it's dark humor. Sometimes it's just earthy humor that, you, that I think also is something that, that Gygax and uh, company would have appreciated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Faffer and the Gray Mouse or whatever else they are, they're you know, their their concerns are pretty practical and worldly, but they're not brutes the way that Conan is, right? 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 Um. So yeah, um, there's that that element as well, and uh, also I would say that you can look at some of these stories individually, and once you start realizing how these ideas are being deployed, 
you can use some of them in your own to devise your own adventures or your own scenarios. Like imagine uh, a a a magic item um, where you know it 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 gives it causes a certain consequence, mm -hmm. right? But then that consequence alters other things around the player in such a way that the player didn't anticipate the outcome and it may not work to the player's the player character's advantage um actions have consequences and and sometimes if you're not you know that'd be the thing i mean the one the one drawback to the cambellian worldview is that inevitably some the characters are either either screw themselves over or they're the smartest guy in the room right and they literally are the smartest guy in the room um and so that's that's kind of a drawback within the uh, and again i guess i should probably go into why the magazine is forgotten when the authors aren't some of the authors aren't um you know, i think that'd be a good way to kind of wrap up the, the consideration of, of unknown yeah um, yeah what happened why is the magazine forgotten even though the author that's a, that's a good way to to wrap start to bring this campbell it, it boils down to a number of factors Campbell's early supporters and his early stable of authors kind of put forward the idea that the golden age of science fiction was Campbellian. Um, right? Now, once those authors started drifting away from him because he wanted them to write this kind of story he wanted, and this happened, Heinlein drifts away, Theodore Sturgeon drifts away, Asimov drifts away, um, both because of that and because of another factor. But anyway, a bunch of his authors leave him, and then he attracts some new authors, and they eventually leave him for similar reasons, right? And so he's kind of stuck. Uh, unknown folds because of the paper shortage. He puts together an anthology later uh, of, uh, of Unknown Worlds, which collects some of the stories from it. Um, but here's the thing that this many of the authors whose careers he had cultivated a had moved on to other magazines because they were frustrated with him or into the by the 50s and into the 60s the emerging paperback market hmm. um there's money to be made in that right and you had companies that were already by this by the by the uh, late 40s and 50s publishing collections of science fiction in hardback um so Campbell was already kind of caught up. And then, of course, you had other magazines who were likewise developing their own stable of authors, like Planet Stories had Ray Bradbury and Lee Brackett and some Frederick Brown. Um, Thrilling Wonder and Startling Stories had like all, all just basically everyone who wasn't went on wasn't writing for Campbell as well as some people who did write for Campbell also wrote for startling and thrilling wonder um but their their stories were more kind of uh adventure based right which can they were they're more kind of uh they you can hand wave some of the science in, in favor of the story mm-hmm mm -hmm. yep and uh rule, well, rule of cool, how the magic works um and that 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 would have driven campbell nuts but on the other hand it opened up opportunities for writers who also became huge names in the genre and then by the fit so that was happening during this campbellian golden age you had other magazines which were producing writers um, they may they may not have sold or had the distribution that Campbell did, but they were doing well, and the, some of the authors from those magazines became well known names as well. You had the burgeoning uh, later. You had the paperback market eating into it, uh, so that's one factor. The other factor would be that he published the first um, works involving a certain religion started by one of his writers. And uh, he also started increasingly pushing for his writers to include psionics in their fiction because he was convinced that this was real, an actual form of human inquiry. I mean, I mean you've seen the amazing Kreskin, right? So yeah, exactly. 
Um, and a lot of them actually, um, at that point, they start. Some of his other writers started kind of bailing on him because there were, you know, problems that were ensuing from this, like in terms of the kind of readership that the magazine would attract, and mm -hmm. in, from their point of view, they wanted to be taken seriously as fictioneers and as futurists or whatnot. And there's this other stuff that's attached that they're like, this is not scientific. This is pseudoscience. This is, you know, the same sort of thing that we're, we were parodying uh, previously with some of our stories. This is exactly the same thing. So you had that. And then by the time the 60s rolled around, I'll, I'll, I'll use one anecdote to illustrate a pattern. Samuel Delaney, the great science fiction writer, approached him about serializing one of his novels. And Campbell, in, through uh, a third party, told, uh, apparently informed Delaney that no one was interested in reading about a black guy. Oh, jeez. Um, and that's probably, like, one of the least problematic. His editorials became increasingly um, pro- war in an era when that wasn't popular mm -hmm. um increasingly troubling in in the light of the civil rights movement and there's this thing where there's free speech but there's also the thing where you're starting to sound like a bitter old guy on, on you know get off my lawn and where th sometimes that can cross over into actually causing people hurt and offense uh like asimov wound up saying that you know he had always suspected that that Campbell had had tendencies towards um, extreme views, but that they that that became more pronounced in his later years. Right, right. Um, yep. So, and again, I'm not trying to cause controversy. This this got that kind of scuttled his reputation within circles of science fiction fandom. Right, and um, so it fuzzed on him. It just faded. Yeah. Now he yeah. was still in the, into the 70s, just before he died. He was when he was still editing. Uh, he was still remembered fondly, but it was largely a kind of nostalgic fondness. It was a fondness for what it, he had managed to pull off during those years between, say, 37 and maybe 1945 or 1950. Mm -hmm. um, and he still had managed to accomplish some, you know, he still managed some coups in his later years. Dune was first serialized in Analog, which is what Astounding became. Astounding uh, eventually transformed into analog science fiction. But yeah, he alienated a heck of a lot of people, and including all of his authors who had helped him, you know, kind of build the magazine. Um, so it's kind of a shame in that way. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where that I'm not, it's up to each individual. I'm not going to say right. what one yep. should or shouldn't read. But right. There's material in there, and there's material in his early work that I think even now can be used and exploited mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, tweaked and uh, and even prodded or dissected, you know, if, if that's the inclination. Well, but, to me, there's some great just literary devices to use. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, tropes, if you want to use a dirty word, but yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm listening to all of this and I feel like that's probably how we got to like the expedition to the barrier peaks. You know, um, I don't like spaceships in my D and D, you know, oh, yeah, I, well, I feel like that's probably that influence came from some of this stuff. It came uh, from, it, I think it comes, some of it comes from there. Uh, certainly. Um, cause he was, he was, there were periods, there have been periods throughout science fiction's history and fantasy's history where the two kind of bled into each other and weren't necessarily distinguishable. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith and H.P. Lovecraft wrote some stuff, which, let's face it, has some science fictional elements, mm -hmm. or in Smith's case, explicitly science fiction. Um, some of the stuff that was in Unknown, when it got canceled, he, Campbell went ahead and published it in Astounding anyway, uh, even though it would seem to run contrary to that magazine magazine's tenets, he still published it there. Um, and so you sometimes had, like, you know, well, this seems like a fantasy story, but I guess that the, the underlying logic kind of makes it fit in with Astounding's general tone at the time. And, you know, you would have things like some of the stories in in Unknown. Yeah, you have like a story about dueling wizards competing for, for control of a planet, 
that the wizards are actually spacefarers trying to convince these primitive uh, inhabitants to yeah. give them mining rights. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these seven-foot-tall humanoid figures are being coerced by by these two parties, each each of whom wants basically mining rights for their own purposes to save their planet. You know, with our natural resources, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna exploit the locals yeah, by yeah. convincing them that we're we're powerful wizards. All um, all good fodder for for potential campaign narrative and and bad guy absolutely. motive. And, you know, absolutely, and uh, I think that there's a real potentially you can find a lot of this stuff like i said in on kindle some of the individual stories novellas you can find uh find it in online in the internet archive it's there and it's a tradition that kind of came out of a reaction to weird tales and some of the weird mm -hmm. tales writers published in there as well because everybody published wherever they could get paid right 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 um and yeah, you definitely wind up with some names that we're going to be looking at more more closely in, in coming installments, I hope. Uh, Fritz Leiber and uh, Frederick Brown uh, and uh, DeCamp and uh, so forth in, in these pages, as well as some authors like Jane Rice, who had just a great period of productivity in the early 40s and then just didn't publish really much fiction until she had a later um like outpouring of fiction in the in the 80s she published a little bit of fiction between then but yeah um she's one i would argue one of the genre's great forgotten short story writers yeah well that'll that'll give us something to to consider for future because there's so much this is such a body of authors um just looking through i had while well, you we were chatting i had the uh the Moldvay list from the, the BX rules, and there are so many authors in there. Um, you know, this is a seemingly endless uh, supply of a font of, uh, of inspiration. So um, I think with that, I think I want to wrap right here. Yeah. Um, and I'm point. really, you know, I'm really thankful to you for bringing us this look at Unknown Worlds of Greyhawk you know, from the Unknown publication and all of this Jack Campbell I'd, I'd never heard of of him again. This just I've never been a huge uh, sci-fi ophile. Uh, just hadn't gotten that deeply into it. I kind of got stuck with uh, Dragonlance and uh, the Tolkien works. So this has really given me some stuff to really think about, especially as a DM. Some of these uh, literary devices and and uh, ideas for for twists and plots and things. So I really appreciate you bringing this uh, to us, Les. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh... I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it, and I hope the uh, listeners out there uh, enjoyed it. And you know, yeah. go out there and do some reading, folks, or, or listen to some audio books because there's a lot of great stuff out there. Yeah, and I mean, if it's good enough to uh, inspire folks like uh, Gary Gygax and Rob Koontz and company, um, it's probably good enough to inspire you at your table, which is, you know, one of the the pillars of this podcast is we always try to leave people with things they can tangibly removed from from our listen so uh yeah thanks again les and we'll have you on in uh in the near future with the next it's great to have you Les. Yeah. yeah um one little bonus i just want to throw out if i may. yeah man um just so you know part of the story behind two two uh sort of adventure would be that uh Fritz Leiber's wife wound up writing he wound up reading at the mountains of madness to her from astounding and uh she was so she was so enthusiastic and so excited by his excitement that she wrote to Lovecraft in care of Weird Tales, and Lovecraft immediately wrote her back. And before too long, uh, Fritz Leiber was corresponding with Lovecraft in the months before he died, and Lovecraft made some suggestions about some of his early drafts of uh, the, and the first Fafnir and the Grey Mouser story, things he might want to develop and think about, and so forth. Yeah. And then he wound up, of course, submitting it to the sister publication of Astounding and getting published there, um, which is kind of neat if you think about it. Um, it's the way that that all loops back on itself. Right. Yeah, it gets, gets authors connected. Yeah. 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 Very cool. All right. So until next time, um, Mateus.
good to see you again or hear you again in this case. Uh, Les, thanks for being with us, and we'll uh, we'll visit with you again uh, very soon in another uh, installment of Appendix N and Adjacent. This is Scott uh, Wiley Hobbit. Thanks for listening to us, and uh, be safe and kind out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of Graycast. All righty. Take care, guys. You've been listening to the Greycast Podcast, where we explore the world of Greyhawk one podcast at a time. Mateus and I are excited to share our passion for the world of Greyhawk with each of you. We'll drop episodes every other Monday featuring all things Greyhawk. Please refer us to all your cool, nerdy Greyhawkian friends and allies, even your most hated enemies at the gate. Find our podcast on Spotify and be sure to give us a follow on Twitter at Greycast576 to keep up with Greycast. Until next time, remember, it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to.